3: In today's ever-changing, get-it-done-now world, we live in a constant state of stress and worry. According to today's guest, Dr. Elizabeth Stanley, we can learn to become more resilient and alter our effects and outcomes. Dr. Stanley is an Army veteran, a pioneering researcher, and an Associate Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University. She's the author of the book, Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma welcome Dr. Stanley thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me Joan.
3: So Liz in your life you have experienced a lot of trauma can you tell us about a few of the things that you went through that led you to create a mind fitness training program?
4: Well um, we often end up doing what it is we most need to learn for ourselves and I am definitely of that kind of background I experienced several traumatic events during childhood, like many of us do. And then when I was in the army, I served overseas and experienced stressful military training and even had a near-death experience while I was deployed in Bosnia. I also experienced a lot of sexual violence in my life, including sexual harassment that when I reported it, um, there was command reprisal against me, and that's why I left the military. And then while I was in graduate school, um, all of the coping I had been doing throughout my life, the way many of us cope with stress, pushing it under, compartmentalizing, denying it, keep going. I'd done that for decades and my body was done. It was just not going to do that anymore um, because that way of coping was turning stress on and not turning it off. And so at the worst of my um, you know, body acting out after all of that unresolved stress and trauma. I developed PTSD and I even lost my eyesight for a while. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, what it took to get my attention and realize that I needed to learn a new way to deal with stress. And um, that's what I did. And I developed this resilience training program and I write about it and the research we've done with it in this book
3: any one of the things that you experienced could have had a crippling impact on a person's life, but to experience all of these, I, I can't <laughs> even imagine how overwhelming. I mean, not that it's a contest. I mean, people usually say to me, because in a very short period of time, my mother died, my sister died, my 23-year marriage ended, my oldest son left for college, and that was within wow. six months of my life. But, you know, th- this isn't a contest that anyone wants to win, but when you go through these types of experiences, I completely understand with how you manage them for most of your life because I did the same thing and that so many of our listeners do as well. So let's talk about some of the strategies that people can implement to heal and move forward. The title of your book is Widen the Window. So let's start there. What is the window that you write about and what does it mean to widen it?
4: Well, the window is the window of tolerance that each of us have for stress arousal within which we can keep our deliberate decision-making and being able to access choice online. When we're inside our window, we can do those things. And when we're inside our window, that's when our behavior can really be intentional and it can match our, our goals. That's when it's easiest for us to recover from trauma. And people with wider windows are much more tolerant of uncertainty and much more flexible during difficult situations. They can, you know, go with the flow better when life throws a curveball. They're much more comfortable with change. And they're also the best able to give and receive social support during stressful situations. So having a wide window is really important. Um, Our window starts being Wired when we're still in the womb, actually, and it's very affected by our early childhood social environment. Um, But we can narrow it throughout our lives. And it's interesting, Joan, when you were sharing, you know, about your experience, which sounds like it was a very intense six month period for you, too, you said it's not a contest. And what's interesting is so many of us treat it as a contest, and Mm -hmm. our thinking brains. Um, you know, will devalue or dismiss what's going on with us because we say, oh, well, you know, I haven't been raped or I haven't seen combat or I haven't lost three people in a six-month period. So, you know, I'm just dealing with garden variety anxiety or I'm just dealing with, you know, bills and too many deadlines. And, and we write that off. But the problem is when we do that, then we're all conditioned to do that. When we do that, it, It actually makes our stress worse because that is not helping the part of the brain that controls recovery from stress to actually do the recovery process. So in terms of simple things to do, one of the most important is understanding how the part of the brain that controls recovery, it's very affected by where we're directing our attention. And we could be at- directing our attention consciously, but more often we're having our attention directed unconsciously. So when we're caught in a cycle of worry or we're watching, you know, uh, lots of traffic around us or we're paying attention to the news, which is always activating, you know, when we're directing our attention in ways like that, that's actually turning the stress on without helping to turn it off. So we need to become aware of where our attention is because we always have choice about what we're directing our attention. And then we can direct our attention in ways that help that old part of our brain that controls stress. I call it the survival brain can help the survival brain to feel safe because that's the stance it has to be in for it to stop adding more stress and to start turning on the recovery functions we need to recover from stress and trauma.
3: So because a lot of our window, the size of our window is due to programming that we didn't even write, the key then is to become mindful of our behavior.
4: Absolutely. And to become mindful of the ways that we are often caught in these autopilot, as you said, programming that was wired at times earlier in our life that was really adaptive. It helped us survive then. But It's not necessarily helping us to thrive now and being able to recognize when we're in the middle of one of those programs and then to be able to redirect our attention in ways that help us to recover and rewrite that programming because we always have that choice today.
3: Liz, what does the science tell us about stress, trauma, and resiliency?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. We often think of stress and trauma as two different things and they're kind of conceptualized as different and we go to different clinicians or different specialists to to handle them. What the most recent research is showing however is that they are a continuum. We'll turn stress on whenever the survival brain perceives a situation to be threatening or challenging. That's what turns stress on and that's not up to our thinking brain, that's up to this unconscious part of our survival brain and stress is traumatic. If our survival brain is also perceiving us in that moment to be helpless or powerless or lacking control and so when we begin to learn how to direct our attention we can direct our attention in ways that help our survival brain to realize even if the situation around us is not under our control and it's not how we want it to be we still have choice in where we're directing our attention And when we have shown our survival brain that, then we're accessing choice and that prevents us from feeling powerless and helpless. So it's a protective measure against trauma. And that's one of the ways we can become more resilient.
3: Well, and I know a a lot of people, whenever they go through some type of an experience, they automatically fall into that victim mentality. You talk about not being able to control things. I couldn't control my mother dying. I couldn't control my sister dying. I had already lost my father and brother. So that was my family. I couldn't control the divorce. All of these things in my life were outside of my control. And I got to a very dark place, but... I realize that I was at a fork in the road and as you said it's a choice you know which way will I go will I turn it into something positive will I choose to to survive and heal or will I stay stuck in that victim mode in that dark place and just live that way for the rest of my life it really is some type of a choice that we all make It's always a
4: choice. It's a choice at a macro level, like you said, in terms of am I going to choose other behaviors, other habits, other ways of engaging in the world. But we also have this choice at a micro level, which is where we're directing our attention moment to moment. And I know that this sounds really crazy and even simple, like we should already know it, but we don't already know it even though the science is now showing it's the case. In a moment where we're feeling overwhelmed, we can direct our attention, for example, to feeling the support of the chair, feeling the contact of our butt with the chair. And that alone, just directing our attention to that pressure and hardness, or if we're in a comfortable chair, softness of the chair, that one little shift in our attention is actually showing our survival brain that in this moment, we still, it might be really sucky, (laughs) the situation might be really sucky, but we in this moment still have, we're still stable, we're still safe. And that, making that little shift to show the survival brain that even in the middle of this really horrible situation, we're still stable, that actually has tremendous effects so that we can access the macro choices you were talking about in terms of habits that turning towards um, building a resilient way of being in the world and engaging in the world again instead of giving up.
3: And I think the message here is that it makes us extremely powerful. It does. It absolutely does, Joan. Yes. And
4: when we have been through some really challenging things like that really, I'm sure, incredibly painful and overwhelming period that you were talking about in your life. When you weather something like that and come out the other side, you know, there's a reason why people use the phrase post traumatic growth because we are wiring these new implicit memories that show our survival brain even though this is horrific, even though this is really, really challenging, I still have. Capacity to make it through. And then the survival brain knows that for the next challenge we face in our lives. That is the process of widening the window.
3: Liz, can you explain to us what intergenerational trauma is?
4: Yes. So I said earlier on in our conversation that we start wiring our window when we're still in the womb. It starts wiring in our third trimester when we're in the process of starting to wire our brain and our nervous system. And it continues throughout our childhood. So if and we wire ourselves, our brains and our nervous systems and our hormone system, our immune system, all of these things get wired through the resonance with the people that we're spending the most time with, our early social environment, which for most of us is our parents. If our parents are coping with unresolved stress and trauma themselves, or they've just been through a really big loss, and they have not done their own recovery, then our parents' windows are also narrowed. And more likely than not, our parents' windows in that case have also led them to have insecure attachment styles. And both of these things, the, the, the narrowed windows of our parents, an insecure attachment style with our parents, which result from their trauma and stress that have nothing to do with us, it resonates to us, the children, as um, through stress contagion, through emotion contagion, and even through epigenetics, which is the process of um, repeated experience affecting our gene expression. It's one of the reasons why people will say, you know, alcoholism runs in the family. It's not actually the genes; It's the, the epigenetic changes that have been passed on generation to generation. So intergenerational trauma happens when the children begin to wire a narrow window, not because they've experienced something directly themselves, but because they're picking it up through this wiring resonance from their parents' And that's why parents have a real responsibility to heal and recover from their own stress and trauma so that they are not conveying that into the minds and bodies of their children.
3: And that's the really important point, because we need to become mindful and break the cycle, not only for ourselves, but for our future family generations. And when we do that, how long does it take, Liz, to actually widen that window? How many generations? Well, you know,
4: we can widen our window, the the published research um, that we've done, I've collaborated for a decade now with neuroscientists and stress researchers to look at the effects of my resilience program in um, troops before they deployed to combat, police forces, other high-stress populations. And they have shown changes in their sleep patterns, in their cognitive performance, in their hormones and blood biomarkers of resilience, in the way that their brains fire during stress, in the way that they go through stress arousal, like during combat drills, how fast their heartbeats, how fast their breathing rate works, all of that shifts after just eight weeks of training. So parents might be super stressed right now. They can begin to turn off some of those... um, chronic stress and trauma effects in their own mind and body today and then through repeated experiences with their children, they can interrupt it in this generation. It doesn't have to be passed on. But the other side is if we don't turn it off and we let those changes stand in ourselves, the epigenetics research has shown that changes in great-grandparents, this research has been done, not with humans so much with mice and, rat, and rodents, um, rats because they have much shorter lifespans but they've seen traumatized mice and traumatized rodents, the great-grandparents, so four generations, the same epigenetic change, the, the detrimental change in immunity, in stress arousal, in memory function. It lasts four generations, they've shown. So we can interrupt that instead of passing it on. And we can start today just learning how to train our attention to be able to help the survival brain recover, um, getting more sleep, getting more physical exercise, spending time in regulated environments. Our minds and bodies are always resonating with something so being in nature is actually very helpful for our mind and body because nature helps us to downregulate and making sure that we're eating well so that we can help boost the immunity in our gut through our microbiome. Um, Our diet has a huge effect on our epigenetics actually. So all of these different tools are in the book Um, and your listeners can also go to my website and download the first exercise for training attention. that's in my resilience program. The first exercise is called the contact point and it's five minutes long audio exercise to train the attention to help the survival brain to feel stable and safe. And we can do that every day so that when we are in the heat of a stressful situation, we can draw on that skill.
3: And Liz, do you have a strategy or two that can help us stay more grounded so we don't take on the energy of others?
4: The best strategy I know for helping to interrupt the detrimental ways that stress contagion and emotion contagion works is that when we are with someone who is really stressed out or really anxious or really irritated, if we can direct our attention to feeling our body in contact with the surroundings. Around us, so our butt in the chair, our feet touching the floor, our hands—maybe if we're driving, touching the steering wheel. Um, Any time we can direct our attention to some of that physical contact, it will help our survival brain not pick up their stress contagion and instead to stay regulated so that we can convey back to them that regulation and help them to down-regulate too. We can also direct our attention to neutral things like sounds around us, hearing the sounds and, and spaces of silence between sounds. That also is a way to help us get regulated. But in the heat of a moment with someone who's really stressed, physical contact, the sensations of contact, is a better first cue.
3: The book is wide in the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Again, if you would like to get more information about Dr. Stanley and her work, or if you'd like to access some of those resources she mentioned, you can visit elizabeth-stanley.com. And as always, you can visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list and be sure to follow us on social media. Liz, thank you so much for joining us and for providing ways that we can manage whatever life throws at us. We can learn to widen that window and not only survive, but thrive. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me today, Joan. It's been a real pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
5: Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th
2: and Madison. Let's talk about tomorrow for a minute. Chances are someday you are going to want to retire. And even though you'll stop working, you'll never want to stop achieving. You'll want to explore new ventures when you retire. You'll want to see and experience new things because you'll finally have the time to do it. But to get there, you'll need a financial strategy. I can help. I'm Tasha Garcia, a Morgan Stanley Financial Advisor in Short Hills, New Jersey, and have more than 12 years of experience. I can help you create a strategy based on how you want to live now and once you retire. I'll work with you and your attorney toward your goals like estate planning and leaving a legacy. And the great thing is I'm right here in the New York metro region. To make an appointment with me, call 973-921-6519. That's 973-921-6519. Meet with me today to talk about your future, because when you stop working, your retirement income is going to have to work for you. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, Morgan Stanley, its affiliates, and Morgan Stanley financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC.
3: In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or Google, search for Conversations with Joan and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, CYACYL.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. Sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on-call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, a certified transition coach, reinvention expert, and speaker who empowers people that are stuck, in pain, or ready for change to release the struggle, gain clarity, and evolve to their highest purpose as they move through life's challenges and transitions. Linda is here today to discuss success through stillness. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joan. It's always a pleasure to be here. Linda, we hear so much about the detrimental effects that noise, stress, and constant external stimuli have on our health and how we can benefit from silence, solitude, and stillness. Can you talk about the importance of taking a break from the frenzy of activity and how it can help us be more successful and happier in our daily lives? Yes, our
6: world is filled with nearly constant activity, demands, tasks, opportunities, and noise. When we're constantly bombarded with activity, we can hardly even hear our own inner guidance. Intentionally, taking some time for silence and stillness is actually a productive antidote to the non-stop world we live in today. There are volumes of studies now documenting the importance of silence and stillness in developing and maintaining physical, mental, and emotional health. As a life coach, I can tell you that nurturing a practice of silence and stillness in some form is especially important when navigating your way through any kind of life transition or challenge. I always say, we're human beings, not human doings. And that statement is a good reminder of the importance of regularly taking some time to just be. Now, meditation is just one of many ways to achieve this. Simply sitting in silence, going for a walk in nature, doing breath work, developing a creative endeavor, or even just sitting quietly in the bathroom with the water running or the fan on. Any and all of these practices will create a healthy pause. It may be hard to believe, but even four or five minutes a day can change your life. I encourage you to take a week to try it out for yourself. At the end, you'll definitely feel the sproutings of changes. Don't be surprised that even after one short week, you'll already find yourself yearning to continue the practice, even if you can't quite put your finger on the reasons why. On a personal note i can tell you i tried this myself years ago and committed to being very consistent for an entire year i spent a minimum of 10 minutes a day in silence and stillness about six months into this commitment i went on a week-long vacation of course routines are changed when you're away and although my mornings were really lovely they were nothing like my typical morning success routine after three days i felt strangely out of sorts and it suddenly dawned on me, even though I was really enjoying myself, I missed my morning meditation. Right then and there I recognized how important silence and stillness was in my life. So honoring and embracing silence has an undeniable effect on every aspect of our health.
3: Linda, what advice do you offer to help us get started?
6: One of the first things I would say
3: is to expect
6: it to be a little bit uncomfortable at first. When you're used to the sensory overload, it feels awkward to be in silence. Also, you may find your brain gets triggered and starts to list all of the things you should be doing instead. This is just your ego brain trying to keep you in your old familiar pattern. When this self-talk comes up, just acknowledge and release it for the moment. The more you practice, the easier it will become. I would also suggest practicing at the same time in the same place every day to create consistency. And make it easier to establish this healthy habit. Experiment. Find out what works for you. You'll see that daily demands are easier to handle, difficult decisions provoke less anxiety, and you'll trust your gut instincts more readily. You will more calmly and wisely deal with all the frenzy, challenges, and transitions that life continues to hand us.
3: Linda, when we do this, what can we expect to have happen? What are some of the benefits of practicing stillness and silence?
6: Well, there are so many Joan, but here are some of the most powerful ones. Almost certainly, you'll find a greater sense of calm and be better able to deflect or deal with negativity. Silence is like a mental detox. Expect an increase in your energy. You know, just like your body needs a rest day from consistent workouts, your brain needs a rest from the constant clamor, noise, and demands of the day. Stillness and silence is rejuvenating to the brain, which translates to better energy levels. And you can expect a boost in your intuitive powers. When our brain is disengaged from the constant stimuli, it can finally tap into your innermost thoughts, emotions, and creativity. Tuning out excessive distractions allows you to tune in to your higher self. You'll better understand and appreciate yourself, your strengths your passions and purpose. Practicing stillness gives you greater clarity on what you need to do and what you may need to let go of. There's a real sense of freedom in this. And when we're facing a challenge or transition, this is super important.
3: Linda, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Linda and her work, or if you'd like to work with Linda, you can visit her website livinginspiredcoaching.com. And as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda. We'll be right back.
0: This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
3: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich consistently appears on business book lists. First compiled in 1941, but forgotten due to the onset of World War II, it has been rediscovered and republished for a new generation. Joining me today is Mitch Horowitz, the editor of How to Own Your Own Mind, who is here to discuss how we can learn to think before acting, recognize opportunities, define our purpose, and take action. Mitch is an award-winning historian who has written for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
3: So, Mitch, for people that may not be familiar with Napoleon Hill's work, explain to us why he has remained a constant force for today's motivational thinking.
0: Well, Napoleon Hill really set the template for business motivational thinking, and he was an interesting man. He was a journalist who lived and worked uh, through most of the 20th century. He died in 1970, and when he was a young man, he set out to determine whether you could find a common set of traits in the lives of exceptional people. So he spent many years, probably close to two decades, making a survey of the lives of inventors, entrepreneurs, diplomats, soldiers, artists, and asked Can you find a common set of traits? He believed that you could and he codified 13 traits that seemed to appear again and again in the lives of highly successful or otherwise remarkable people. And he put them into his book Think and Grow Rich in 1937, which became probably one of the most famous books and most widely read books ever published in this country.
3: Mitch, what are some of these traits that he recognized?
0: The primary one and probably the gateway to all the others is having an absolute passionate aim in life, not just something that you name as a, as a cherished goal, but something that you regard almost obsessively. And he would maintain that if you look in the lives of people you want to emulate, whether they are inventors or entrepreneurs or artists or soldiers, you will almost always find that they dedicated themselves to one impact and obsessive trait. Today we talk about balance, we talk about diversifying, Mm -hmm. but he would have said that the hard truth is you mustn't look upon being obsessed over one goal as some kind of pathology that needs to be diagnosed and treated, but rather if you look into the lives of people you most admire, uh, whether they're people of our own era, like a Steve Jobs or people of his era like a Thomas Edison or Henry Ford, you'll almost always find that these people dedicated themselves with absoluteness to one aim. So that's one primary a trait that he found again and again.
3: We hear so much about creating vision boards and how it's important to visualize what you want in order to manifest it. Why is Napoleon Hill's program different from just visualizing what you want?
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. A lot of people ask me, isn't Napoleon Hill more or less like The Secret or what have you? And programs like The Secret, for example, while they may have some virtues and benefits, are chiefly programs of visualization. That's what they are. Uh, Hill used visualization, auto-suggestion, and other techniques to build confidence and to visualize goals, but he augmented it with a great deal more. Uh, He absolutely believed that you had to cultivate accurate thinking, you had to be an organized planner, you had to learn how to distinguish among the quality of different kinds of information or different kinds of self-proclaimed experts. He believed it was absolutely critical to take concrete, practical steps towards your aim, even if they're really just very small steps, but that it was vital to begin enacting something in the direction of what you wanted to accomplish. He had attitudes about saving and spending that he writes about in Think and Grow Rich. Uh, he talked about the importance of finding the right kind of colleagues and forming support groups so that you could share ideas and exchange information without just allowing yourself to blurt your ideas out to just anybody or to uh, get your, your, your equilibrium mixed up by receiving opinions from people who, for example, might not know a great deal about your product. Mm-hmm. He talked about the importance of using imagination to marry uh, very specialized plans and information that you've gathered to the project that you want to undertake. He believed that imagination was not just some faculty that you used for daydreaming or for that matter for visualizing alone, although that is part of his program but that imagination also had to serve as a bridge, and that bridge could occur only after you did a huge amount of research so that you could thereby use the imagination to marry your research to some concrete aim. So his program was very well-rounded. It involved both mental work and visualization, affirmation, meditation, but also very, very practical steps that he demanded of the reader and said, you know, you have to act on these things and act on them immediately.
3: Was there ever a time that he believed it would be okay to take a leap without thinking?
0: That's a very good question. Uh, he believed in intuition. He believed in flashes of insight. He believed that sometimes ideas could just come to us through the subconscious mind that, you know, had some sort of a mysterious faculty, where just the thing that we needed would would kind of flash into our consciousness. But he believed that these things only occurred in a meaningful way Mm -hmm. after we did a tremendous amount of research and legwork and background work on our goals. You know, he, he, he believed that we really do have and can cultivate intuitive faculties, but the critical part of cultivating those faculties is doing a great deal of work. Mm-hmm. Um, this quote is often attributed to Albert Einstein. I don't know whether he actually ever said it. I have my suspicions that, that imagination is more important than knowledge. But if Einstein did say anything like that, I think he would have conceded, and, and Hill is, is, is very much concurrent with this, that if that's true, that imagination is more important than knowledge, you still have to amass enormous amounts of knowledge before imagination can actually be useful to you and that was Hill's attitude.
3: Why did he believe that it's bad to talk about plans? Is that because talk leads
0: to an action? That's sort of a wonderful point. He'll believe that we should limit our talking about our plans to circles of people we really trust. He talked about forming a mastermind group, or what we today would call a support group, Mm -hmm. which is basically a a group of like-minded, like-valued people that get together uh, once a week. Usually, I have my own mastermind group and talk about, discuss, encourage one another in in their plans, and and also uh, critique and scrutinize one another's plans from a position of mutual support, shared stakes shared values, and there had to be comity and harmony and a great deal of trust in a mastermind group, as you would expect in, in a support group or a 12-step group or something of that nature. What he'll warned against and, and what you're alluding to in his work is that you must be very, very careful not to just go around spilling your plans to just anyone because you will find, and I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to this, that friends, colleagues, coworkers, relatives, sometimes you'll announce some charity plan to them and they will say something very depleting or very disparaging or they'll greet it with some sort of an eye roll and chances are they have no idea what they're talking about but it's a trait of human nature that sometimes we we sort of salve our own inactivity by running down other people's ambitions and plans and it's very very common that people will describe something that they hold very dear to a colleague or a workmate or even a friend And that person will make a disparaging remark and disrupt their equilibrium. And he'll said, there is no commodity on earth cheaper than opinions. Everybody's got them and they're usually worth nothing. Do not solicit opinions. Talk to people, but talk only to people who are part of a network that you know you can really trust. Don't go around talking casually.
3: Absolutely, because nothing will derail your ambition faster than having someone give you his or her opinion.
0: Absolutely, and it happens all the time. And, and, and to that, I would add that so-called experts are sometimes wrong themselves. I've worked in publishing for many years, and I've heard things from experts over the years that have been completely wrong. Every expert has a bad day, and brilliant people can be wrong about things. So when you get a piece of information, when somebody makes a judgment about something, corroborate it, you know, never operate just based on one source. And be very, very careful when you're seated at that Thanksgiving table next to your Uncle Mike, don't just blurt out to him, you know, what's on your mind in terms of your business (laughs) plans, because we've all had that experience. And uh, you you shouldn't have your equilibrium upset by it. Talk to people who are really in the know about what you're doing.
3: Mitch, what did Napoleon say about recognizing opportunities? One of the things that I work very hard to do is not leave, anything on the table. I try to maximize everything. What did he believe about that?
0: Well, one of the things he said is that opportunity and sometimes career-making opportunity tends to come along very unexpectedly through back channels. You have to be out there doing all the things that are necessary to accomplish whatever goal you have in mind. But he said that It's very, very common that while you're doing all that work and while you are stretching yourself toward a certain aim, the thing that you're looking for may come to you in some form or another in a very indirect way through a real back channel, sideways, very unexpectedly. His observation was that time and time again, success or opportunity or or some just momentous occasion will occur completely on the periphery of what you're doing. It will occur, but it'll be peripheral to all All the other work that you've been putting in and it seems to be this mysterious trait of life that in order to get that peripheral benefit you need to be putting in the work to begin with but he said success often arrives in a very indirect way and in a kind of unexpected package.
3: The book is How to Own Your Own Mind. If you would like to get more information about the book or Mitch and his work, you can visit MitchHorowitz.com. Mitch, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with?
0: I think what I want to leave you with is that Hill dedicated himself to the principle that Traits that lead to success can be cultivated in a person's life, and that you can find common traits among successful people. Human nature is remarkably consistent, and if you study human nature, you can learn lessons and apply practices and techniques in your own life that are actual concrete stepping stones to success or achievement.
3: Mitch, thank you so much for being here with us today and for sharing this important work that has truly held the test of time. It's just as relevant today. As when it was written So I really appreciate you spending time with us
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure
3: We'll be right back
1: Have you ever wondered what type of toxins are lurking in your body? Hello, I'm Dr. Kyle Apocino chiropractic physician and founder of Health on Main Wellness Center located in Little Falls, New Jersey. There are many harmful toxins and chemicals found in our diet, our environment, water sources, and our medications. Fortunately, a good deal of these chemicals and toxins are removed naturally from our bodies. Well, what happens to those toxins that stick around? They can become trapped inside our body's tissues and cells, such as your hair, nerves, organs, muscle, or even fat tissues. You could experience headaches, body aches, blood pressure irregularities, sleep disturbances, arthritic conditions, memory difficulties, visual disturbances, and digestive issues, just to name a few. How can you tell if you have a toxic condition or nutrient deficiency? There is a simple, yet very accurate form of testing called a hair and nutrient mineral analysis. This test utilizes a small sample of your own hair to detect these imbalances. It's so effective that it's utilized by the Environmental Protection Agency. And in a report from the EPA, they confirm that human hair may be a more appropriate tissue than blood or urine for setting some exposure to some trace elements. If you'd like to learn a little more about these chemicals and mineral imbalances, I can be reached directly at 973-832-6722 or online at healthonmain.info. I'm Dr. Kyle Appicino, chiropractic physician and founder of Health on Maine Wellness Center located in Little Falls, New Jersey.
5: Many of us have so many responsibilities in life that we forget to take care of our personal needs. We're all less able to handle the stresses that come our way when we're already depleted by physical and emotional exhaustion. We're at our best when we're feeling good, both physically and mentally. Hi, this is Angela Vlokoncik and I'm a Stress Management Specialist from Bridge Management Consulting, offering teachable stress management skills. People who neglect their own needs and forget to nurture themselves are at risk for higher levels of unhappiness, low self-esteem, and feelings of resentment. As a group, caregivers are at a higher risk of getting burnt out and need to make a point of practicing self-care. Taking time out to care for yourself reminds you and others that your needs are important too. Remember to take a holistic look at your care, meaning body, mind, and soul. Regular exercise, going for walks in nature taking a class in a subject that interests you and getting in touch with your inner self all contribute to a greater sense of well-being. Remember, self-care and nurturing isn't an indulgence, it's a necessity. For more information on stress management coaching and seminars for work and personal development, visit bridgemanagementconsulting.com. 646-418-5650.
3: In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or Google, search for Conversations with Joan and subscribe. New shows drop every Monday. You can also access the podcast through our website, CYACYL.com. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. It's time for To Your Health. Joining me today is Mark Anthony, the founder of Prospect Fitness, located in Brooklyn, New York. Mark is also the Vice President of Operations for Diet Typing Systems, an online personalized diet therapy system. He's here today to discuss the importance of core strength. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us.
7: Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me on today.
3: So, Mark, we hear so much about the importance of strengthening the core. Where is our core located?
7: Our core is actually a pretty large system of our body. Most people think that it is just about the six inches around our belly buttons, but it is actually from our knees all the way up to our shoulders, both in the front and the back. So you can see that it's a pretty big system and a pretty large part of our body. So what's the primary function of the core? The primary function of the core is really to provide a stable platform for which the arms and legs to move from. It also really helps to prevent anti-rotation and prevent force when being applied, especially in heavier, vigorous activities.
3: So from your experience, what are common problems that you see people presenting regarding their core?
7: A lot of people really have core stability issues Um, in exercises. I often see their hips shift to the left or the right when we place them on the ground and especially in three-point stance and without the ability to have that bracing and provide for stabilization, a lot of the arm and leg strength loses power.
3: So many of us, whenever we think of strengthening the core, we think of sit-ups. We think that's the only way to get this job done, but you're not really fond of sit-ups. Why?
7: I'm not really fond of sit-ups because that's not the way that the core functions in the regular part of everyday life. Probably the only time that we really do something that mimics a sit-up throughout the day is when we get out of bed. But the core is used every day in life, especially when we're walking, we're jogging, we're exercising. And that's really when the core comes into into play, especially if we're trying to lift our heavier things. That's really when core strength and core stability is going to protect you and keep you safe throughout the day.
3: Mark, many people want a flat belly. What's the best way to achieve this?
7: The best way to achieve this is still the going back to doing full body strength, concentrating roughly trying to get into a workout routine, trying to take cardio about 30 to 45 minutes per day, about five days a week with two days of full body strength training on top of that. Full body strength training will, will strengthen the whole body the way that it's supposed to be. Mark, thank you so much for
3: being here with us today. Where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work?
7: As always, you can visit our website, prospectfitness.com.
3: Again, that's prospectfitness.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
3: Do you ever feel like there's no end to the problems that you face? Do your challenges seem too great to overcome? Do you ask yourself, what's the point? If you answered yes to any of these questions, welcome to the majority. Most people at one time or another feel the same way. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my Ph.D. in life. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We tend to look at others and think that they have it made. They have it all figured out. What we don't realize is that those who appear to have figured it all out... Have the same feelings. However, they've made a conscious decision to turn their adversity into a positive experience. A wise person once said, pain is inevitable but suffering is optional. We all face adversity. It's what you do with it that matters. I had the opportunity to interview baseball great Jim Abbott. Jim pitched a no-hitter with the New York Yankees, won the gold medal game at the 1988 Olympics, entered the starting rotation of the California Angels without spending one day in their minor league, and finished third in Voting for the Cy Young Award. Jim was born with one hand. Jim spent much of his life with his missing hand tucked in his front pocket. Like the rest of us, he felt insecure and self-conscious. But he chose a career with a uniform that didn't have a front pocket. Even when he was standing on the pitcher's mound making history, his insecurities crept in his thoughts. But he never let those insecurities stop him. And now he serves as an inspiration to many children especially, proving that anything in life is possible. His challenge has become a gift. Will you let your challenge become a gift? Will you look for the lessons in your adversity? If you've lost a job, try to figure out what happened. Is there anything you could have done differently? Is it time for a career change? If you're facing an illness, look for the reasons why it may have happened. Can you change your lifestyle or your diet? Can you be an inspiration to someone else? If you have relationship problems, what can you change about the way you interact with others? Is the person an emotional drain in your life? If you're in debt, can you improve on your budgeting skills or become more financially prudent? Adversity is guidance. Sometimes it comes into your life to tell you it's time to change, sometimes to teach you a lesson. Always remember that anything can be overcome with the right attitude. Look to others for strength and inspiration. Rather than getting bogged down with your own problems, pay attention to people who happily survive and even prosper despite all of the odds. As Jim Abbott said, when something is taken away once, it is given back twice. Look for what is given back to you. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember, the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.